Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Uh, I'm Aaron Cadell, and I'm president of Global Council USA in Washington, D.C. We're very pleased to be joined today by Matt Bennett, executive vice president for public affairs at Third Way, uh, think tank here in Washington, to discuss U.S. policy and politics. Uh, Matt's a veteran of multiple Democratic presidential campaigns and presidential administrations and an insightful D.C. observer, and we're happy to have him uh, back with us. So let's turn to you, Matt. Let's start with, with Afghanistan. I guess that's the Really the big news over the past month uh, for, for us here in the U.S. and for many of our allies and friends around the world. Certainly everybody was dismayed to see the images and hear the reports in recent weeks of the, you know, the rapid fall of Afghanistan after the decision uh, to end U.S. military involvement there after 20 years. We had the lives of uh, some service members, U.S. service members lost, as well as a number of uh, Afghan civilians uh, amid the chaos around the Kabul airport and, the, and within the draw, withdrawal of Afghanistan. From your perspective, how does uh, how do the recent events in Afghanistan affect America's standing in the world, uh, our place with our with our allies and friends, especially considering uh, the theme that Biden had campaigned on and, and which he had, had governed early in his presidency that America is back, that America is a, a credible ally again after the the chaotic and isolationist years of uh, of Trump's uh, presidency. Well, uh, first of all, it's good to be here. The um, the withdrawal was obviously messy. We had the tragedy and loss of life. Americans, uh, we have left behind some of our friends and allies, and all of that is uh, horrible. But the fact of the matter is the ends of wars that we don't win are messy. Uh, they, never, they never go well. And there's always going to be um, things that we regret when we leave uh, a battlefield that we have not uh, won. And we've unfortunately done that quite a bit since the end of the Second World War, and we've seen the consequences, both substantive and political. I think in terms of America standing in the world, I actually don't think that it took too much of a hit. World leaders understood where Joe Biden has been on Afghanistan for a long time since he was vice president. He's believed that the war was not winnable, that we should get out. He was clear about that. Uh, when he was campaigning, he was clear, I think, um, certainly was clear when he was talking to our allies, and they understood that that's where this was heading. They might regret the way that it was carried out, but I don't think they're surprised by it. I also don't think that it's going to change their view of Biden as a reliable ally. They all understood that the war was winding down one way or the other, that 20 years was enough, um, and, you know, thousands of lives and wounded and $2 trillion, and we just couldn't do it anymore. So I don't think that they view America's reliability based on whether we were gonna remain in Afghanistan. It's a completely different situation uh, than, the, than the peaceful, stable, stable situation we have with, with troops in South Korea or Europe. Everybody kind of got that. So I, I think in the end, uh, this won't be a huge political issue for Biden. Um, Americans have pretty short memories when American troops are out of harm's way. And I don't think it'll be a major global problem either. Thanks. So if we shift to the, 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 domestic, the domestic side of uh, this, Biden has taken a hit at home as a result of uh, the missteps in Afghanistan. Surely the, the 
rapid rise of the Delta variant here in many parts of the country has been uh, has been a factor as well. But nevertheless, you've had uh, his his uh, poll numbers have taken a hit. Uh, we go by the uh, the average of uh, presidential approval polls that's aggregated by Real Clear Politics, and on that basis, he's dropped from sort of the mid to low 50s where he really had been since the start of his presidency pretty consistent uh, down to 45% as of the last uh, measure. And I think that Afghanistan and, and Delta call into question really the, the theme of that Biden had, had put forth since he was a candidate of being a competent, uh, competent leader, again, contrasting himself with Trump, surrounding himself with experienced kind of technocratic advisors that kind of Calls in calls into question, uh, and then as as you know, we're heading into a, a really critical stretch of his his presidency with this effort to uh, to pass a, a massive uh, a massive bill in Congress uh, for which his leadership will be uh, will be important. We'll talk a little bit more about that about that bill, but just in general, how do you think that the events in Afghanistan, the the turn in COVID that we've had here, uh, affect Biden's ability to govern domestically? It affect his domestic agenda. I actually think, uh, given where we are, um, that it won't have a huge impact on either of those things because he is now negotiating among Democrats. Uh, Republicans are on the sidelines uh, now. They have done their bit. They voted for the infrastructure bill in the Senate. They're not, ex not many of them are expected to do that in the House, but a few will. And then none of them are going to vote for the reconciliation bill. So the conversation that we're having is among Democrats. And Democrats understand that they will rise or fall as a majority in both chambers with Joe Biden. So um, the fact that he is uh, weakened, that his poll numbers have gone down, I don't think will have a huge impact on his ability to get to a deal. It's gonna be a whole bunch of other things that we'll discuss in a moment. Uh, I do think that the you noted both COVID and Afghanistan have conspired against him, and um, some of it's his fault, you know, in, in the uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan. Much of it is not his fault. The COVID, the Delta variant is not Joe Biden's fault. Vaccination hesitancy, not his fault. Um, and in my view, at least, he's doing a pretty good job. He's got a big speech this morning rolling out uh, another COVID initiative. So he's doing what he can do. And I think ultimately um, his numbers will start to creep back up. Remember that uh, lots of presidents who went on to win re-election had very low poll numbers in the August of their first year. Um, at this point in the Bush administration, they were basically, um, pundits were saying that Bush was a failed president. And then of course, two days later was 9-11 and his, and his um, reputation was completely changed by that, both for good and ill. Um, and then Barack Obama, the ACA was was dead in the summer of 2009. Uh, he came back to not only pass that, but to win re-election. And Bill Clinton had the same issue. So the fact that there are summer doldrums in the first term, a first year of, a, of an administration, is not surprising or new. Um, and often that gets turned around. Got it. Maybe let's let's just turn to this turn to the bill to the the uh, the infrastructure package. I guess it's being thought of as the human infrastructure versus the physical infrastructure that that the the package that you refer to that Republicans did vote for. But I think first just for our listeners, just getting their arms around this this bill itself. I mean, you know, three and a half trillion, I guess they used to say a billion here, a billion a billion there. Now you've got to say a trillion here, a trillion there in DC. Now you're now you're talking about real money. Uh, but 
three and a half or two or one and a half or whatever it is, all are, are very, very large numbers. And then just also the scope of what this bill deals with uh, affecting the social safety net. I mean, healthcare, environment, tax policy. I mean, these are these are huge, uh, huge things. So maybe we'll just uh, talk first kind of what's in and what's out. Uh, you're in touch with folks who are helping to craft this and and following it more closely than most. So just what's your sense first of what's kind of what's in and what's out and what are the key priorities for Democrats, uh, as you say, congressional leaders as they're as they're putting this uh, putting this package together? Well, making predictions about exactly what ends up in the bill is probably foolhardy at this point. Um, I think it's very safe to say that the bill will not be $3.5 trillion if it passes. I don't think there's any way that Manchin or Cinema will vote for that. And obviously they need every single Democratic vote in the Senate and pretty much every single Democratic vote in the House. We have only a four vote majority in the House at the moment. So um, there is going to be an epic battle between the moderates and the far left. Um, Rashida Tlaib tweeted this morning that 3.5 trillion is the floor. They wanted it to be 6 trillion. Um, that She's gonna lose that fight. It's not gonna be the floor. The floor is gonna be uh, either 2 trillion or below. Um, Manchin is saying he wants it to be 1 to 1.5. I think that's probably low. Uh, my guess is it ends up around $2 trillion. And what that means is that $1.5 trillion worth of spending has to be stripped out of that bill. That is a lot. Um, you can do a lot of things with $1.5 trillion, and people will be howling about that because they view this, I think, correctly as the last best chance to make enormous change in the way we we are governed, in the way our economy distributes money, uh, before the overwhelming likelihood is we lose the house and possibly lose this opportunity for a very long time. So I understand why people are uh, nervous and frustrated about this, but uh, I think the inevitable result will be that a bunch of this stuff will come out. And then maybe if you could could step through it, just what are the the broad parameters of the key priorities you see Democrats leaving in in terms of so the climate provisions are are controversial. I mean, all of it's controversial, but uh, in terms of the contours of the major the major elements of spending, paid family leave, and sort of the social elements, universal pre K has a huge price tag. Uh, maybe that comes out, but just could you walk through some of the the major provisions you see uh, the the bill sticking to among uh, kind of climate, social safety net, healthcare, and tax? Sure. So on uh, climate, I think that there is, that is the piece of the bill that probably has the most um, unanimity among Democrats. Even, even Joe Manchin, who is the chairman of the Senate Energy Committee, is pretty committed, uh, depending on the day, but for the most part, he's pretty committed to, um, to doing some aggressive spending uh, to grapple with climate change in ways that I think can be credibly said will create jobs and help propel the United States forward as a leader in the development of new technology to grapple with climate change. That's going to be the focus of this bill, and I think, uh, or a focus, and I think that is going to remain. Um, there are big questions over some regulatory pieces in the bill, whether they can pass Manchin's muster or the parliamentarian but I think you will see if this bill passes, it'll have a big chunk of climate spending. On the social safety net, there are probably, well, there will be some provisions that survive if the bill passes, but not all of them. That's where the biggest uh, piece of the cuts I think are gonna come. And um, I don't know that the options before the leaders are gonna be do everything but scale them back to 
fewer years or fewer dollars or means test them in some way so that they're not universal or do fewer things and do them more robustly over years and, and for everyone. And that isn't settled now. We don't know whether they're gonna strip things out entirely or just scale them back. Um, and I think that's an active conversation happening. I know that's an active conversation happening among senators and house members and the White House at the moment. On the taxes, I think uh, there you will see both a stripping of entire pieces and a scaling back. So my guess is the corporate rate will not go to 28, which is where a lot of Democrats wanted it to go, which, by the way, is where a lot of companies were comfortable with it going back before the Trump tax cuts. But uh, suddenly they become very, very uncomfortable with that. So um, we are now probably talking about 25 or 26. And then there will be huge debates over the other things, the international rate, obviously um, individuals, where where does the uh, level go? Does it go to 39 or some other number? Uh, what do you do about cap gains? What do you do about uh, stepped up basis? Again, we don't know whether those come out entirely or get scaled back but some change will probably come to all of them. And then the biggest fight is gonna be over healthcare. And that's fight the intra-party fight among Democrats. One faction would like to shore up the ACA and make it permanent. And another faction led by Bernie Sanders wants to expand Medicare, uh, both by lowering the eligibility rate uh, age and by um, expanding it to vision and dental. Those are both very expensive. They're not expensive compared to the Bernie's Medicare for All plan, which was $35 trillion, but they're pretty expensive and um, you can't do both. So the question is, which do they do? And I think that will be decided ultimately by the president, uh, the speaker and Chuck Schumer. Now, you've done a, a great job of, of talking on our prior calls about the delicate balance that, that particularly Democrats have to walk between satisfying the, the moderate wing of the party, which you've correctly said sort of wins elections. Ultimately, it, it was that wing that brought Biden in the White House by getting folks who voted for, for Trump in 2016 to vote for him, whereas the progressives pretty much going to vote Democrat in, in most cases. Uh, and yet they bring the energy, they bring a lot of the ideas, uh, and so satisfying that. You've been in the, you know, been in the White House in the past as an advisor to, uh, to President Clinton, and been involved in a lot of campaigns. How do you think about there will be a moment where Biden will be faced with decisions later this fall to go big or go smaller to quote get something done to make sure he keeps the support of Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema, you know, uh, folks in the moderate wing. How do you think about those kind of questions, which, which ultimately get into questions of Biden's legacy and uh, he's come in comparing himself to uh, LBJ and FDR and, and transformative presidents like that. Clearly with the, the situation in Congress, he has to be less ambitious than that. How do you kind of walk that line? Because ultimately you could, a progressive might say, look, you, you go big and you just tell Manchin, this is the deal and you take it or walk away and then hand, this, hand the keys to the Republicans. So as, as these, these months go in heading into the, heading into the, end of the year, how would you Say you're back at, you know, you're, you're advising Biden or advising um, Chuck Schumer and, and uh, Nancy Pelosi. There'll be questions of going bigger or going safer to make sure you get something done. How do you kind of how do you kind of walk that line? So the, all of those definitions of bigness and, uh, you know, liberalism and progressiveness are deeply subjective and relative. I mean, um, we are now saying that one point five trillion would be small and three point five trillion will be big. I mean. Okay, but like you right. know, last year, we might not have defined it that way. So I think the, the key question around the politics of how this will all land with voters 
is not really which number it lands on. If you look carefully at public opinion data, voters don't really think about the difference between a trillion and a billion and a million. You, a, a House member could go back to their district and say, I stripped $5 million of wasteful spending out of that bill, and they could get a huge bump from that out of a $2 trillion bill. So it's just not, voters don't think numerically that way. What they think about are broad narratives. So if this bill passes and it is defined as the Sanders bill that has given people cradle to grave welfare as the New York Times unhelpfully described it a few days ago, um, Democrats will lose 60 seats in the House. It will be a catastrophe politically. If the bill passes and it's defined as the kind of Joe Manchin, Joe Biden bill that is a responsible, thoughtful approach to grappling with huge problems that voters understand that we're facing right now, then I think we have a fighting chance. Maybe not of holding the House, that'll be really hard because of lots of structural reasons, but of coming close. Um, and so what we are real, what I would focus on if I were a White House advisor is how do we ensure that the narrative around this bill is that it is the Biden bill, the responsible, the thoughtful, moderate, pragmatic approach rather than the kind of more uh, aggressive, wild-eyed approach of the, of the democratic socialists. I'd like to turn to turn to politics and elections a little bit. Uh, we had you on uh, very soon after, very shortly after the the November 2020 elections, and you uh, appropriately uh, called out that the that that election fight uh, over the presidential uh, deciding the presidency would be protracted and ugly. And that was a great call by you. It was a tough tough uh, for all of us to to go through. But the voter suppression uh, measures, voting you know voting rights, uh, the actions by places like Texas on on abortion recently, all these are are pretty meaningful in the grand scheme of things as we head into the midterms next year. Let's assume the bill comes across as you're as you're anticipating, uh, and you and you get that one and a half, two trillion bill that is that is messaged uh, as the way that you uh, would say. So as good an outcome as you could expect for Democrats. How do you think then the, the, the midterms are starting to shape up uh, in both the House and the Senate? Well, I think there are uh, three very fundamental questions that you'd have to answer before you know how the midterms are gonna go. One is what do the maps look like and where have the restructuring of our system left us? You know. After the maps are drawn, Republicans are likely to pick up about a net of about six seats. They're going to lose some in places like New York and Illinois. They're going to pick up uh, in other places. Uh, they will decide ultimately in state by state whether they do what's called packing or cracking. Either they will pack uh, in states that they control, either they will pack all the Democrats into few districts that are safe Democratic, but then leave them opportunity to win uh, more statewide, or they will crack the districts as they might do in, in Nashville, for example, where Jim Cooper could face a seat that he can't win. It's that now two districts, not quite as safe for Republicans, but um, possible for them to pick up. So what they do with redistricting is going to make one huge difference. The second is the thing you alluded to, which is the voter suppression laws that they're passing in a lot of places. I am less concerned about some of the stuff that's gotten a lot of high profile coverage, like handing, you know, banning the handing out of water and food online. I'm more concerned about things like the banning of mail-in ballots. And I'm deeply concerned about the authority that they are taking away from local election officials and the criminalizing of election 
uh, official conduct in ways that are obviously intended to intimidate. And so I'm very worried that they're going to be able to steal elections in places like Fulton County, Georgia. But we won't know that really until the elections happen. And then the, the big one, of course, is uh, what happens historically in the first midterm election of a presidency is that the president gets wiped out. Uh, it happened to Bill Clinton, it happened to Barack Obama, and it happened to Trump. It did not happen to Bush because in 2002, uh, he was still riding high in his response to 9-11. If we get our arms around COVID relatively soon, and, and there is no mutant variant that comes along that can defeat vaccines, and vaccine um, you know, percentages go up, and our caseloads start to come down, and the economy opens up, and people are feeling good by next spring, and spring is really when um, the mood of the country really is set for the November elections. If we're feeling good by next spring, we have a fighting chance of doing reasonably well in the, in the midterms, despite all those other things. Again, we're looking even past that now. But if you if you kind of think about Biden's the second half of, of Biden's first term, uh, and if we do, if we do assume that that you lose the House and thus that that legislative flexibility is 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 lost, do we shift as as happened with uh, with Obama and others to largely trying to act through? Regulatory agencies through uh, through through new rules is that sort of then the the theme for uh, for the Biden presidency? We've actually in doing our, a lot of our work, we've seen that things have been a little slow. You don't have a, a confirmed CFPB director, a very important position for for progressives. The EPA sort of feels like it's just getting rolling as as many of these industries are being restaffed uh, after uh, being pretty heavily depleted, depleted by Trump. Is it sort of uh, largely getting things done by the agencies, or would there still be uh, an effort? Bill Clinton was an example of getting getting a fair bit done with a with a split Congress with things like welfare reform and, and other things that he did with uh, with the Republican-led uh, House uh, in, the, in the 90s. So is that more the strategy, or do you just sort of sit back and, and try to get, get things done with the agencies and then look ahead to 2024, be that with Biden or, or, uh, or somebody else? Uh, there is no question that Joe Biden will try to do things with Congress, even if he doesn't have control. But he's look, even though uh, Clinton was facing the Gingrich revolutionaries in 1994, they were very conservative um, and they uh, were, you know, in kind of constant campaign mode and they hated Bill Clinton and they ended up impeaching him later, much later. Um, they were dealing with a very different kind of opposition than Biden will be facing in the House. Um, Kevin McCarthy's House will um, almost certainly impeach Biden, uh, possibly impeach Harris um, on trumped up nonsense. And um, the, he will give voice to um, some super crazy people who are accusing Joe Biden of doing very crazy things. And so dealing with, with them, I think, will be potentially impossible. In the Senate, if McConnell gets control of the Senate, he will have been handed control by also by very crazy Trumpian people. It will have meant that people like Mo Brooks, who was one of the people who spoke at the January 6th rally and, and urged people to go march on the Congress, he will be a senator. He, people like Josh Mandel in Ohio who is in a vicious race to the bottom with J.D. Vance for the Republican nomination uh, for Senate in Ohio, um, is, a, is a wackadoodle Trumpian. So um, McConnell will be um, running a, a much more Trumpy Republican conference in the Senate. 
And so I think Biden's opportunity to do things with that Congress will be pretty limited. Maybe if you just, maybe I'll, I'll step back and ask one last one. This is sort of the, the, the big picture one for you as a, as a longtime Democrat and, and an observer of these things. When you, when you do think about, about Biden as he's heading into, again, sort of facing these first real challenges with Afghanistan, with Delta, what do you think is really kind of his, in his head and thinking, okay, here's what I'll be, here's, here's what I'll be remembered, remembered for. I mean, you've never had somebody who's, who's fought for as long and as hard to become president as, as he has. I mean, That's 30, sure. 40 years, like arguably his, his entire adult life. Uh, when he uh, hosted Tom Brady and Buccaneers, uh, I, I finally reached the mountaintop. And so right. just from, from your observations of him and the folks around him, uh, is it this, this chance to remake the economy as much as he can? It's, again, two trillion, as you said, it's not three and a half, but it's, it's a whole lot. Things like family paid medical, family paid medical leave, um, a, a lot of these healthcare provisions would be would be massive for progressives and Democrats. Uh, does he still think of himself as I'm trying to become known as a foreign policy president to extract myself from Afghanistan to create that hard for presidents to kind of define themselves uh, on foreign policy? Many have tried and, and not really succeed in the way they want because they have less control. What do you think of the the couple things that in the you know Ron Klain, Biden himself? The folks that are closest to him, who've been who've been there for twenty or thirty years, what do you think they really want his legacy to be, and the Democratic Congress and, and and a Democratic president? When you step back and compare him to Obama being identified with Dodd Frank and the Affordable Care Act, Clinton with you know welfare reform and and things like that, what do you think Biden's legacy is now that he's sort of trying to trying to execute on in these these three years that he has? At least they could be seven, but could be three. Well, I think uh, first of all. When you are in the White House, the incoming um, that you are dealing with, uh, the, the wave after wave of problems and chaos and trouble that, that White House is confronted with, leaves you very little time for reflection on legacy. Uh, presidents tend to do that in the seventh year of their term. Um, they invite the historians in and they have dinner, not after Trump, but you know the other ones. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Biden, and, Biden had him in like his first day, it seemed. He did. <laughs> yeah. he did. Uh, and but so I think you're right that Biden probably is uniquely uh, a, a more aware of that than uh, his predecessors have been. I mean, I worked against Joe Biden on a presidential campaign 30 years ago. Um, so uh, 33 years ago. So the, uh, the but the, the reality is that he is not thinking about that much. I think if you asked him to reflect on it, he would say that he wanted to be remembered as a restorative president after a destructive and chaotic uh, Trump term and um, coming in facing the unbelievable confluence of crises that, that he was confronted with, with the pandemic, the economy, climate change, Afghanistan. Um, he, he was just uh, handed a very, very difficult set of problems to deal with. So my guess is his legacy will be that he brought us back to stability in all of those ways. I think that's a good place to leave it. Uh, thank you, Matt, for your time. Thank you all for joining. For more insights, blogs, and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.